my name's Sylvester McCoy. I played Doctor Who. <laughs> Number seven. Yes, a long time ago. Anyway, you're listening to Neil. No, you're not. Listen to me. Anyway, you might be soon listening to Neil. Podding. Whatever that is. Neil Before Blog presents... Neil Before Pod. Welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that's crossed its own timeline. Doctor Who recently did a regeneration episode in honour of the BBC's 100th year anniversary. That's insane. It's the upcoming 60th anniversary of Doctor Who as well, but that's for later. Anyway, we're here to talk about the centenary special Power of the Doctor. And joining me is perhaps someone who is me from the future or from the past or both. It's Isaac. Hello. Which one are you? I I don't know. (laughs) I think it'd be weirder if I was from your past. If that was the case, you could have been way more handier with giving me like lottery numbers or work advice or not moving into flats we're evicted from. That would have been handy. Although isn't the rule once the encounter passes, both parties forget about it? Oh, that's true. Yeah, the... Oh, what's it called? Oh, this is the one subject that we do podcasts about where I know something, and there was a very specific term that they invented for the essentially technobabble excuse for that. And it has a specific term, and I can't remember what it is. Yeah, we used to know what it is, but then we forgot after we experienced the event, so that's fine. That's fine, yeah. That's our excuse. I'm sure you weren't expecting a pop quiz either, so I'll let you off. Yeah. Or you could look it up and we could edit it in. Anything's possible. But anyway, Doctor Who. It's actually one of our pledges during the 200th podcast to do a Doctor Who podcast about the centenary special. So we've fulfilled one of them. We get there in the end. Maybe by 300 we'll have done another one. Maybe. Maybe not. Depends how many Marvel movies are coming out. Marvel is keeping us a bit busy with their non-stop content. And could be that Doctor Who's about to keep us really busy with non-stop content. We just do not know. We don't know. That's for the future. It is. This isn't the first time we've discuss Doctor Who, but let's pretend it is, because it's been a while. So what's your history with Doctor Who? How did you get into it? And how much of it have you consumed? Listeners of the podcast who've heard ones that I'm on know that I don't have many opinions on things. I tend to be like, oh, I don't know. But Doctor Who is maybe the one thing that's near before pod relevant where I'll always have something to say or opinion or knowledge. So mine goes back to 1999 when they started doing some repeats on BBC of the episodes in the 70s and then from then on lots of VHS tapes and the books in charity shops and then with the revival of Doctor Who and I've gone into the expanded the big Finnish audio stories the comics books I've not seen like every one of them and when I go online there's people with 
doctorates in Doctor Who. <laughs> I don't know, a million times more, but certainly in terms of franchises, this is the one that I'm the most in-depth in. <laughs> An aficionado, perhaps. Yeah. Of the Neil Before pod gang, I think this is my division. This one's my one. You say you haven't seen all of it. Unless you were actually alive in the 60s, it would be impossible to see all of it, wouldn't it? Or have they restored all of it by now? No, I think there's still 90 or so odd stories that exist only as novels or some people recreate them or make audio plays of them but yeah unless you were there at the time you can't see all of them but even of the ones that exist it's going to be 60 next year there's a lot of doctor who and (laughs) there's a lot i've missed but it's also what i know the bbc used to tape over things used to tape over things which is really hilarious when you think about it this preservation of art to it's like now this is crap we'll just tape over it no one is ever going to want to see this again. It is funny reading about stuff in the 60s. They taped it live, they left it in the sun, and then <laughs> they either taped over it or threw it in the bin. Or some production assistant took it home and they've kept it in the fridge for 40 years. Kept it in a wet box. <laughs> in the leaky attic underneath the hole in the roof. So you being a Star Trek aficionado, and that was the same time, is it a BBC-only thing, or was it just the done thing of studios back in the day just to wipe things? It seems to just be a BBC thing because all of Star Trek has always been accessible. The only thing that wasn't was the unaired pilot, The Cage, for a while, but even then that came out on VHS because they still had the film, so all they had to do was restore it and put it on videotape, basically. Star Trek has got the HD treatment. It was really easy to do because it was already on film. So all you had to do was scan it and upscale it, and it was perfect. Whereas it seems with Doctor Who, I think they filmed on film and then transferred it to videotape or something like that. Or videotape didn't really exist at the time, but they transferred it to a cheaper medium just to broadcast it. And then I guess whoever was in charge at the time didn't think there would be any longevity to these things. So just left them, just let them get damaged and things. A lot of shows, occasionally there'll be like lost episodes of Dad's Army. I think this year there was one of, I think it was Hancock's Half Hour or one of those old comedian shows was found so I know definitely in the BBC that was a done deal, but I was wondering if it was just a 60s thing or if it was just the BBC being cheap on their videotape. I think the US were ahead of us on repeat culture in terms of just repeating stuff on different channels. So the Star Trek, there was a desire to keep it going because you could just repeat it often, whereas the BBC didn't really do that, I don't think. Not until much, much later. I suppose also because they were like the one channel in the UK. So it's like, we can't sell it to anyone, we'll just burn it. Yeah, pretty much. That's it. No one cares. My Doctor Who fandom began in 2005, really. I started with the Christopher Eccleston series and I've been off and on with it ever since. There's been points where I just got sick of it and stopped watching for a while. I think it's of wildly varying quality as a show generally. Although I do have vague memories of watching some of the older stuff When I was younger, they used to do omnibuses of entire stories on UK Gold on a Saturday or Sunday or weekend days. So I have vague memories of seeing Tom Baker wandering about doing stuff, but I didn't ever really watch it as such. And as a sci-fi fan, I just became aware of everything surrounding it. I knew the ins and outs. So before it came back in 2005, I knew about regeneration, I knew about dialects, I knew about everything else. So it's one of those things that was just very easily ingrained in the, I guess, in the cultural mindset, certainly in the UK. Everybody sort of has an idea of what Doctor Who is. Even if you don't know the show, you'll know what a Dalek is. Yeah, I think that a lot of the long-standing, same with like Star Wars or Star Trek, a lot of it is you don't have to be a fan of it to know a few of the big elements of the show. For example, Star Trek is like Beam Me Up or Spark. 
and I'm pretty sure I knew who Darth Vader was before I saw Star Wars. <laughs> Everyone knows, they're just born knowing who that is. Yeah, it shows you how successful something is when everybody vaguely has an idea of what it is without knowing what it is or knowing it intimately. Even the yeah. Tom Baker image, I think, transcended the show. The hat and scarf and so on. Yeah, definitely the police box, Tom Baker and a Dalek are the big three if we're including the future now, David Tennant's kind of that Tom Baker of the new generation of it. He's the doctor for most people, I think, or for casual fans or people who are aware of it. Okay, so this is the end of the Jodie Whittaker, Chris Chibnall era of the show that has ran for, was it five years? Although it's really only three years because we had essentially two years with nothing. Yeah, 2017. So yeah, five years with an active three years. It's a strange one. She's had one of the longest stretches, but the fewest episodes or fewer episodes than some of the people that match her timescale. Obviously, she's had more than Eccleson, but less than Tennant, Smith and Capaldi. Yeah, definitely Matt Smith will have had more and stuff, but that's also just the nature of... I mean, there's some things you can't help. (laughs) Yeah, circumstances were out with the control of the people making it. We can't really hold that against them. But what's your thoughts on this era of the show? Just in general, high-level thoughts on it? Definitely Jodie Whittaker has become my doctor. She kind of represents everything I like about that character. I mean, there was a thing, it was one of the old, oh, Colin Baker. He was doing an interview with probably Doctor Who magazine or something like that. And he was describing her doctor as, it's nice to see the doctor after having the modern ones. And same with some of the old ones. She really likes being the doctor. It's very infectious, the amount of fun she's having. Whereas definitely with Chris Jockelson and Peter Capaldi and elements of the Moffat and Rusty Davis doctors. There is a sense of sometimes it's either a bit of a burden or it's a hard life to live. Obviously, fighting Daleks all the time is a hard life to live and there's death everywhere. But something about her doctor, it's just a sense of wonder, the sense of a slightly childish attitude, how excited she gets at things, how much she skeeks out, especially in the earlier series. I can't remember which one it was, but there's one where they have this energy converter or starship engine thing and it's just like this long spiel of just absolute excited geekery about energy matter conversions and stuff and i also like that there's not an ego really when she was talking to her companions and yaz and stuff most of the time it does feel like an equal sort of footing it's not when you have say matt smith going like come along pond i'm the doctor i'm the best sometimes there's a sense of never fear everybody look how amazing i am kind of thing with some of them especially matt smith tom baker-ish a bit of David Tennant, but as her, it, it's nice. She can sort of see things that her companions, like their strengths and weaknesses, and she can kind of use them a bit. But I think it kind of dropped off a bit when the arc and the storylines got a bit tighter, but definitely in the early ones, they're like, oh, Graham, you're good at chatting. Go get the gossip. Yaz, you're a policewoman. Think in that style of investigation, sort of work out what you can do. Ryan, you're also here. <laughs> I like that she could sort of see the good in people. She could see the skills and the potential of people. And she could work to help them be the best versions of them that can be. I always thought that was really lovely. So I really enjoyed her run as the Doctor. If I was using one word, it's the wonder, the sense of wonder and the excitement. Those two things that I found just very lovely. It's really nice how the Doctor just loved being the Doctor. Rushing to see as much of the universe as he can. It's had a couple of ups and downs over the years. And I know a lot of people have been not mega fans of it. But I think for me, this is a real comfort era. This would be the ones I'd put on when I'd just watch that too and this would be probably one of the eras that I'll go back to more than the other ones. That's an interesting take and I do think you're right about the characterisation of the Doctor. My thoughts on this era has been Jodie Whittaker was great casting with a not so great writer behind her. So I think Chris Shibnall just doesn't have the chops to 
run the show in the way that he wants to even because there was lots of interesting things sprinkled in but I don't think he has the skill as a writer to realise them not that I'm saying it was completely terrible and completely unwatchable because there was a point during Moffat's run where I just couldn't be bothered with it anymore and stopped watching it was during Matt Smith's second series after his first series put me off a bit because of how convoluted it all got and how Moffat just didn't think he needs to explain anything because it's fine, we'll move on to the next thing. I think Chibnall almost goes too far the other way. He makes it too simple, but he also tries and introduces all these complexities that he's not equipped to deal with. And I think this final episode shows it really well by him just abandoning all the stuff he set up because I guess he felt like, yeah, I can't do this. I don't know what to do with any of the stuff I've established. I think the best example of that style is Revolution of the Daleks, which has so much potential because, oh, the Doctor's in a prison with all these monsters that you're familiar with. Her companions have to work by themselves. And, oh, this could be really interesting seeing how will they deal with Daleks, a major threat without the Doctor, or how will the Doctor... Can she utilise what she's got in this prison, Weeping Angels or whatever, to do something? It seemed like a lot of thingies. But then the companions don't really get anywhere. They give up really easy. Captain Jack rescues it, it's leaves. <laughs> there was a lot of cases with some of them. We do think maybe like two more weeks on this to think about it would have really helped the scripts. So I think there is that case. I'm a big fan of this era, but there is a fair few episodes where it's a little frustrating. You think there's a lot you could have done with that. You've moved on a bit too much without exploring the more interesting elements which would have maybe happened with a Rusty Davis or a Stephen Moffat script. Yeah, and I think Chibnall is more than anyone inspired by Russell T. Davies because a lot of his stories feel like Davies' stories in terms of just the way he does cliffhangers or the way he teases future events, things like that. It feels like he's emulating, I suppose, the guy that trained him, maybe? Was Chibnall there under the Russell T. Davies era? I guess he was floating around at the time. Yeah, his first one was, I think, 42, so it was Martha. And then he did up to, was it the one with the cubes? Power of three? And I think then he stopped for a bit. So I think he did late Chibnall, early Moffat bits, and then Broadchurch or whatever it was. He did Torchwood as well, didn't he? On Torchwood, yeah, was his thing. This is going to sound mean, but he's a little bit J.J. Abramsy. (laughs) I've heard he's very easy to work with. Everyone loves working with him. He's on time. He's a perfectly lovely person to work with. He's great to have on the team. He's not the best, but he's reliable. You know he'll do good, but he isn't a showstopper sort of guy. I think one of the problems that people identify with this Doctor, and I do agree, is that she's a bit too passive. If you look at some of the earlier Doctors, they would actually be getting involved in events and doing things. David Tennant was all about, well, I'm here now and history can be damned because this is what I'm going to do. The Rosa episode, which is one of the best, and the whole point is they have to just sit on the bus and make sure she doesn't get to sit on the bus. But then they pull the same trick again in Demons of the Punjab, and then there's a couple other things where she doesn't take much action. She helps preserve the evil Amazon equivalent business and things like that so the passive quality kind of bothers me although i don't think the show has ever adequately explained what events have to happen and which ones don't just every now and again they'll say this is a fixed point and can't be changed but they've never really told me why yeah that's the sort of get out of thing really. well we have to let the volcano in pompeii erupt because it happened and we can't change the history that the viewer is watching although at least in that episode it was oh look the volcano is never going to erupt but in order to stop these aliens we have to let it erupt so it ends up becoming this brutal choice that the Doctor has to make, rather than a, oh yeah, just have to let this happen, it's fine. Yeah, I think for fans of the classic series of Doctor Who, she's quite similar to the Peter Davison Vera, which was straight after the bombastic 
John Pertwee and Tom Baker runs where it was very doctor centric. They sort of went, we want to bring a little bit of vulnerability and a bit of sometimes the doctor's not always one step ahead of the game and a little bit more passiveness. Peter Davison's doctor had a very large gang of friends. It was the first long-term companion to die in his era as well. It was a bit more, oh yeah, this can go wrong. And it was sort of moving from the slightly action hero 70s Doctors into a slightly more rounded, sometimes flawed character. This will come up in our Power of the Doctor talk as well because we get the Fifth Doctor companion Tegan in that. I've not looked into what Doctor Who Christian will grow up with, but it is quite similar to sometimes the Doctor is a bit more inward and vulnerable you can't always have the matt smith style doctor it's nice to mix them up but also it is quite jarring because i think definitely with matt smith and peter capaldi and david tennant i guess they were very in charge and stable feeling they were that beyond us sort of character they were always many steps ahead and i think moving to one that is not so much it is quite a jarring sensation it doesn't always work for everybody but you can't always have the exact same style no, I'm all for a change in style. I just wish it had been done a bit better. But get into that as we talk about Power of the Doctor, because it's almost the era of the show in microcosm in a lot of ways. But before we get to that, what is your favourite era of the show? Because everybody has their favourite era slash Doctor. You've already said that Jodie Whittaker's your favourite Doctor. So is this also your favourite era or is there another one? Yeah, I think this will be my favourite of the new ones. In terms of the ones I grew up with and have a lot of nostalgia for, which is very handy for the episode we're watching, <laughs> it is the Peter Davison and Sylvester McCoy, so fifth and seventh Doctor ones. They were just the ones I had the most VHSs of. It's the 80s, so I think it's like 81 to 84 and 87 to 89. I'm sort of 80s Doctor Who in the old sense, and then Chibnall Doctor Who in the new sense. My favourite era is actually the Peter Capaldi Doctor. He's my favourite Doctor, although I have to ignore his first series because it's crap. It's complete rubbish. I don't know what Moffat was playing at and I almost feel like he knew he'd made a massive mistake because as soon as you hit his second series, it's completely changed. Capaldi's Doctor is completely different. He is not anything like he was in the previous season. But from series two onwards, I thought that was my favourite. I'm a grumpy old man and Capaldi's a grumpy old man as his doctor. So I really liked that. And I liked how sincere and earnest he was as well. All of his loud speeches about treating people fairly and all this kind of stuff. I loved all of that. So that's my favourite. I do enjoy how much of a grump Peter Capaldi was. Also a bit with the previous doctors of the new doctors. It was a very sharp turn from the sort of lovable David Tennant and Matt Smith into this absolute bastard. (laughs) And it was a little rocky. Though, yeah, like I said, the first series wasn't great. I wasn't a massive fan of the second one either, but I think the middle bit is all excellent. Is that the Bill series? Yeah, I like Bill, but I don't think I've gone back to watch any of them. I don't think it's an era that I'd specifically have too many memorable ones that I can pick out. Before Flux started, I went back to the 2005 era because they were all on BBC iPlayer. So I just watched all the way through it and I'd forgotten how much I really enjoyed the discounting the first series of the Capaldi years. He's definitely my favourite of the current crop. I don't know much about the old crop to make any form of comparison. This may be a very big sin for Doctor Who fans and it might turn a lot of people off the podcast, but I would recommend not watching the Ed Classics. <laughs> Unless you're really into it, it is very slow and... It is fighting rubber bands and cardboard and bubble wrap. <laughs> and a lot of the episodes go on for like two hours. You have to be really into it. I've had people sort of say, I like the new show. What's the best to watch 
the old ones, especially with kids, it's like, no, just <laughs> Six episode serials where three of them nothing happens. Yeah, a lot of either nothing happening or the whole plot being explained by just one unit soldier usually. To be fair, I wouldn't necessarily recommend people want to get into the show going back as far as Rose. It's a very dated form of storytelling now, I think. It is a very different show. Yeah, storytelling changes fast and the show's been around for like forever. And what worked in the 60s and 70s and 80s, again, we'll talk about this when we talk about Tegan specifically, <laughs> doesn't work anymore. Well, what worked in 2005 apparently doesn't work anymore. I think the Eccleson series is probably pretty rough. It's at pace with other shows that were being made at the time, I think, as well. Yeah. Russell T. Davies' approach to arc-based storytelling was rubbish. Repeating a word once an episode doesn't make an arc. I think also with those ones, they kind of aimed at everybody because they weren't sure, are kids going to like this? Are returning fans going to like this? And new fans? So they just sort of did the scattergun of every style. Yeah, we'll see so what they figured out yeah. what was working. I would maybe suggest people start with David Tennant, though, actually, because it's finding a groove at that point. But at the same time, it's probably still pretty dated. I think the easiest system is pick an actor that you think on YouTube, watch clips of them and go like, if Peter Capaldi works for you or Matt Smith or David Tennant, just sort of start with them if you think they're likeable. Or just wait for the next reboot and then if you like it, maybe go back if you feel like it. Yeah, it reboots every like five years. Just wait for the next one. Wait for the next changing of the guard and then go back if you feel like it. That's one of the strengths of the show, the soft reboot every couple of years. It is, yeah. It is the key to its longevity. Anyway, Power of the Doctor. So, spoiler-free thoughts. We haven't even moved into spoilers yet. We're moving very slowly. Pace up a bit. What are your spoiler-free thoughts of Jodie Whittaker's final adventure? I thought this was a very fun end of both her time as Doctor and the Chris Chibnall era. It's fast enough to be fast-paced and entertaining as younger viewer. It's fan service but not in a way that overly distracts from the plot, which is excellent for nostalgia nerds and people who like fan service. There's a lot of great performances, especially Sasha Dewan's master, Jodie Whittaker, Mandip Gale as Yaz. They're all absolutely smashing it. This is a strong finale to this era. It really caps it off nicely. And yeah, it's just really fun. It's a really good time. I would agree. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a really fun watch. And then I sat down to do my review and I finished it and I thought, well, a lot of this doesn't need to be here. A lot of this doesn't actually make sense. If you put the plot under any scrutiny, it's very much, well, that doesn't need to be here. That doesn't need to be here. Why is Vinder here? That's always a question I have. Since Flux. Why is he here? What purpose does he serve? He shows up, does nothing, and then leaves. Yeah, there's a couple of Christian isms in here. <laughs> I think we can say, without spoiling it, if you're big Dan and Vinder fans, you'd be disappointed. I suppose there's six billion or seven billion people in the world, or however many the population is now. Someone's bound to be Vinder's biggest fan, but I can't imagine who that person would be because he's kind of nothing. But I did enjoy it. I thought it was a lot of fun, and I was kind of along for the ride while I was watching it, and... I think it hit some of the right emotional beats. I think it was quite exciting at points. And it does deliver an ending that didn't quite surprise me, but it almost surprised me. But we'll definitely get to that because obviously the, the ending is quite important. But anyway, shall I point the sonic screwdriver at the spoiler machine and make us immune to spoilers? Or should I say immune to being attacked because we're spoiling? Yeah, it's the time trip to post-watching the episode where we know what happens <laughs> and we can't be spoiled anymore. First time using the sonic screwdriver, let's see if I can do it. Okay, let us start with just the story, if we can even piece it together. There's a lot of stuff going on. The Doctor does even comment, I'm dealing with multiple somethings. There's seismologists that are disappearing. There's paintings that are defaced. There's Cybermen on a train. There's Daleks that are 
rebelling against other Daleks. There's tons of stuff. And like I said in the spoiler-free section, I don't think it all needed to be there. And when it all comes together at the end, I was sitting there thinking, why does the cyber moon thing need to be in the different time period to the one they're in now? And what was the purpose of the Rasputin thing? Has the Master always been Rasputin? Is he just Rasputin? Or did he kill the real Rasputin? Or did he put him in a cupboard and then put him back when he was done? I think that's a hallmark of Doctor Who. Anyway, you get a lot of these stories where they interfere with well-known historical events and then never explain how they put them back to normal. Just, well, I'm done here. Off. But hang on, you left Hitler in the cupboard. Is he just going to wake up and get on with it? It's going to be there forever. I do think with this episode, this is definitely one where if you sort of say, oh, the mass is just having a lot of fun, that's about 50%, maybe 60% of the plot. Where all the seismologists gone, it's because the master wanted to kill them all for a statement. Why are the paintings destroyed? I think he just wanted to destroy the paintings. I guess he must have been in his TARDIS and Rasputin came on the radio and he was like, this is pretty banging. <laughs> so he either invented Rasputin or killed him and took over. Again, we don't know. Just so he could have that song as part of his scheme. Just jump a little bit for the master. Essentially, we can't talk about the plot without him. No, he is the plot. He is the plot. And I think it wasn't really in his previous in series 12, but in this one, in a thing of which happens a lot, especially in the modern Master Doctor dynamic, is it's the opposite style. Whereas Jodie Whittaker is Childish Wonder, he is spoiled child sort of bully thing. And it's all taunts, the disregard for history, the killing of the seismologists. It's just bullying. And it's just being very childish. Even his, if you go to his final words, if I can't be the doctor, no one can. It's wanting his toys and not getting his toys. And that's kind of how either this master was meant to evolve or how he's evolved for this story. It's very sort of bratty childish. I quite like that as a take. Again, would it be nice if... That was how he was always in Spyfall and the Series 12 stories. But I feel like in this one, they've gone with a sort of opposite attract against a more childish doctor. They've gone and spoiled child, tantrumy master, which I quite like. It works very well. Some of his scenes, I think there's one where he just absolutely screams at Yaz, I'm the doctor now. Like, oh yeah, this is just super intense <laughs> and scary. So it really works for him. He's having a great time with it. So I think it works with that master and he's very capable of performing that way and i do think everything in the plot is only there because he's just being mean it doesn't serve any purpose other than he just wants to be mean he just wants to hurt i suppose there's a version of this era then where you forget about the timeless child and the destruction of gallifrey and all that and then you frame the masters he's just a nuisance he's just a recurring nuisance just a big nuisance you just turn up and annoy her for a bit and what he does is apocalyptic because that's just the way he is but he's a nuisance it's a bit like when Moffat moved the Daleks away from being every time they show up they're going to destroy the universe to every time they show up they're just going to be kind of an obstacle that we have to deal with yeah I think that's sort of carried on as well into this era the Daleks haven't been a universal threat they're just a superpower in this universe but they've never really been actively plotting to destroy the universe with late Moffat and Chibnall. The Daleks are just in the way. <laughs> they're just around. You just can't avoid them. And I prefer that take because I get really sick of, oh, look, they're wiped out forever again because otherwise they would destroy the universe. And then, oh, look, a year later, they're back somehow. Yeah, it's nice having them be just around. He's defeated this group of Daleks, but not all of them. And he can encounter another group at a later point. They're always about, they're always making mischief. You either stay out of their way or stop them without too much fuss. Yeah. 
And the Master can be like that as well. As I understand it, he was a bit like that in the classic series as well. Was there not a couple of Doctors where he was behind everything? He would just always appear in the last couple of episodes of a serial. I think that was his jam, yeah. He was more with John Pertwee's Doctor, the third Doctor. I don't really like his Doctor, so I kind of avoid him. In the 80s, he got a bit more the mad genius, the maniacal laugh style. But I think initially the idea was, he's doing what the Doctor's doing in reverse. For every planet the Doctor saves, somewhere the Master's just wrecking one. I mean, that was his sort of style. And his plan here is to become the Doctor, but he does it in the most convoluted way you can imagine, as in forcing a regeneration, but also a body swap at the same time. So the Doctor gets forced to regenerate into him, and then he goes off and pretends to be the Doctor. Which, to me, feels utterly pointless, because why doesn't he just lock her in a basement or shoot her in the face and then knit a scarf and say, hey, I'm the Doctor. Yeah, or just say I'm the Doctor whenever. They're not always next to each other. You can just go and invade a planet and be like, I'm the Doctor. This is me. This is my fault. No one knows. It could almost be an ongoing arc, actually, if you think about it. It could be you have a season of the Doctor goes to a planet and finds out that everybody hates him or her for some reason. Yeah. And then you find out in the last episode or the second to last episode in the season that the Master's been out there discrediting the reputation this whole time. Yeah, there is a very good Big Finish series. Have you watched the thick of it? Yes. At all? Do you know the, or what's he called, the bald guy? He's one of the House of Lord. I forget the name, but I know what you're on about. There's this, I think it's a unit series where he arrives like, oh, I'm the Doctor from the future. And he does very doctory things. He solves certain problems, but it's all just to get to a point where when he does take over and twist a knife and betray everybody, it's that much more heartbreaking. People really trust this doctor and believe in him, and he gets a lot of unit passcodes and high priority. And it's all just because he just wants to mess about. And it's very satisfying in an awful way when the penny did drop in that series, where he's like, oh no, I'm the master. All of this nice stuff, all of this confidence you've built, all a lie. <laughs> I'm just here to wreck stuff. And it's very well done there. Again, like we were saying at the beginning when we talked about Christian Will's era, it's sometimes not focusing too much on the very interesting elements and not exactly skimming them, but using them for a story, but not doing as deep a dive as you could into that element or that sort of storyline. Yeah. I don't have an issue with it undoing necessarily the development that the Master received during Moffat's era, particularly at the end through Missy. But I have an issue with it not being acknowledged in any way because what the Master does here is what Moffat had the Master doing at the end of his run. Because you had the last two episodes of Capaldi's final season, the Cybermen ones. And it starts with the Doctor quarterbacking from the TARDIS as Missy wanders around and tries to be the Doctor and sucks at it because she's too arrogant and dismissive of the people she's trying to save. So she holds them all in contempt. She treats Bill like a servant and things like that. It's just that they're not there yet. But the whole point of that story was to show that Missy had grown as a person and was capable of change. And now suddenly back as Sasha Dwan and just a lunatic again, just a maniac who has schemes. And yeah. Even if there was a conversation, be like, what happened to you the last time I saw you? This was going on. I think that's always been a thing, especially with differing showrunners. They don't want to get too bogged down in timelines and stuff. And obviously the master is a major character in this and they'll have their own take they'll want to do. And sometimes it's just easier for time in a script. Just to go like, oh yeah, this is this one. The Missy Master got a lot of development as a full-time character in that final series. And it moved far more from what we usually get with the Master. 
I know a lot of people have been upset about this. People think it's more of a step back. And whether or not that's a case of this is just how Chris Chibber wanted to do the master. I'm not sure a good way of having both, what would be the better option. It's always nice with an infinite amount of time to explore every avenue and have these big conversations. But it's a bit of a shame this Doctor and this Master haven't really had a proper chat. Yeah. I think the reason it stands out is because it is so similar as well. Because Missy's tenure ended with her trying to be the Doctor. And now you have Sasha Dwan trying to be the Doctor, but in a more mean-spirited way. Yeah, this is not the same level of being. It's more of an identity theft. With Missy, you got the sense that it was something that she did at the end kind of regret that she didn't get their friendship that they had back billions of years ago <laughs> didn't work out and they went these different ways. Whether that's just a case of Chris Chibnall skills or time or just that he didn't want to explore that. Yeah, it's a little bit of a shame, but it's something that comes with, I'm sure, when we get the next era with Rusty Davis again, we may get another go. It's just sort of how it happens with these. It's not ideal, but for me anyway, it doesn't take anything away from this master that we've got. It's just a different one. While it doesn't acknowledge past things and past growth, on its own, it's a very fantastic master. But in like the wider lore, it is a missed opportunity, yeah. Oh yeah, no issues with the performance. I think Sasha Dwan's great at playing what's on the page. The storytelling is what lets him down, similar with Jodie Whittaker, really. And then when they do the identity theft thing, he just gets dumped on a moon or something, or an asteroid, and he's no threat after that. I really enjoyed, for all his killing of seismologists and defacing paintings bringing the cybermen into unit all of his very long and intricate planning he's undone because yaz just pushes him out the door <laughs> it's such a panic move from her and it's just oh and his whole plan is undone he's like i'm stuck <laughs> doesn't have a teleporter in his pocket or anything like that oh there's a lovely line in i've been re-watching the 80s i'm into the colin baker era and one of his master stories, the Doctor says he'd get dizzy walking in a straight line. <laughs> it's shown very nicely here that the plans are so encompassing and complete that usually their undoing is there's a very simple... You can't predict for just getting pushed. <laughs> just getting a big old push in the back and you fall over and that's how your plans unravel immediately. You have to wonder what he did to those two planets and why the Doctor doesn't bother to fix it. Planets explode all the time. I guess that's something for Russell T Davies to never pick up because new showrunners don't seem to revisit what the old showrunners have done, apart from Moffat with the Time War. They either revisit it to retcon it or leave it alone. That's your two options. What you had was the Master discrediting the Doctor in one place, or two places, and that was it. Yeah. Good job, I suppose, for getting stuck in an asteroid for... A while while Gaz dealt with the Cybermen and the Daleks and whatever else was going on. Just all the massive stuff that was happening. A big element of this episode is there is a lot going on. I think if you'd have put it just as the Master, it would have been a bit more neat. But also, I understand Chris Trouble probably wanted to go out with just as much. I think sometimes, especially if he's been a fan since he was like eight or a kid, he may have always wanted this giant Dalek Master Cyberman thing. He may have wanted to go just all out on it. And if it's your last chance, sometimes it's just go really big. It's the go big or go home thing. He may have just been like, it's a mess. We can't have time to explain everything, but I just want all of this on the screen. I think when it's your last one, you can just sort of go a bit wild with it. It's fine. Not as a finale, just as a story. 
I think this may have been a bit more rewarding, especially with this Doctor and this Master, to be focused just on those two. And then you could even have the Cyber Masters as backup. Yeah, you need something to blow up. You need something for the companions to do, while the Master and the Doctor are doing whatever. Yeah, it's always handy to have a monster. I think, yeah, having the Cyber Masters, especially when there's the Quaronks and the Converted Planet and how that leads into Jody Worker's regeneration. You could have chopped the Daleks out pretty easily, but I could have the Cyber Masters as a monster, as goons, to sort of help the story go along. Yeah, and you talked about the trapped creature that appeared as a little girl. Another issue I had with this episode is, well, it's both an issue and it's not because I hated the plot in the first place, but it throws out the whole timeless child, the Doctor being the original Time Lord, etc., etc. They throw all that out. Everything that Chris Chibnall established is gone for whatever reason. Like I said, earlier maybe it was just he doesn't know what to do with it so he just got rid of it and forgot it ever happened and russell t davies will almost certainly ignore it and then it's basically a non-thing at this point but when she jumped on the train and saw the little girl my first thought is oh is that her is that the timeless child yeah i was straight into like oh that's her the first appearance of the girl that tech finds at the dimension thing yeah i thought that exact same thing i'm assuming that was deliberate that was a red herring to throw us off it must have been. But also, if you're just going to forget about it, it's a bit of a mean red herring to throw into the audience. Yeah, it's a little bit. I'm not too bothered that they didn't explore that fully. It's similar to the hybrid in Pierre Capaldi's time, the time of Victorious. Back in the old days, it was the Valyard. Occasionally, you have a big old the Doctor's super important law thing, and it just sort of disappears. <laughs> I think it's a lot of attempts to either bring more mystery or intrigue into the character, but obviously you can't solve it because then it defeats the point of bringing more mystery in. It's a thing that tends to get tried quite a lot. Well, the Time Lord Victorious, it was resolved. It just only took a minute. It did only take a minute, yeah. And then the hybrid, that was more of a metaphor, wasn't it? Rather than actually just being a real thing. So I've not gone back to the second part of that one. It's not that well explained, but the idea is the Doctor is a hybrid because of how people perceive him rather than actually being a hybrid of some sort. Yeah. A little bit of retro retconning is great to think that the hybrid was actually the master with the Cyberman. That sort of liquid. The Siberium. Siberium, yeah. That Cyberman hive mind thing in him. Well, he says that in this episode and it's like, okay, what does that mean? Nothing, apparently. He just has it. (laughs) He's 10 steps ahead, but he can't predict that he'll just get shoved out of the TARDIS and left. Again, you can be the chess master and you can know every move, but if your opponent just flips the table, (laughs) can't predict that, I guess. Yeah, and I'm okay with the master just overlooking something. He's so arrogant that he thinks he can't be defeated and he gets defeated by the simplest thing. It's a bit like the John Sim one where he just didn't notice that his wife picked up a gun. Oh, he's got shot, yeah. It's a little bit of mystery for the sake of mystery. It's the same with the watch. But I think if they'd revealed the watch, you know, all the hidden doctors and stuff, one, it would have added a little more time to the episode run. But also, you can sort of leave it. You message me. It's a nice excuse if you want to bring in a big celebrity. There's now a well of infinite doctors that if you ever need... Benedict Cumberbatch for a Christmas <laughs> special. You can use him. Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt, The Rock. The Rock to... The Rock, good. The Doctor would only ever get punched, so how would The Rock play that? The Doctor never throws any punches, but as long as they also never shot at, it's fine. Oh, this Doctor just punches people. <laughs> the thing about the watch and the past lives and stuff, it's a definitive fact that we know exists, and there's a big question mark over it. But also I'm wondering, what would come of the Doctor finding out about those previous lives the suggestion was that when she worked for the division was it called the division the division yeah that she was 
not who she is now. But then any time that Joe Martin turned up, she was just the doctor, really. There wasn't any measurable difference. It was the same with John Hurt in the 50th anniversary special. I was expecting this grizzled, violent, gun-toting warrior doctor. Nah, he's just a nice old man. I think it is a case of, ultimately... These are all Doctor Who fans. I think it feels a bit too jarring for them to bring in this idea like, oh yeah, he's the war doctor. Or when we first meet Joe Martin's doctor, she has a gun. And that's just part of her gear. And it's like, oh, this could be a radically different version. But I think also the sort of like, we don't want kids to question the morals or themselves. Oh, this is my childhood hero. <laughs> I can't have them machine gunning everybody. <laughs> the tangent on the Joe Martin doctors. I thought we weren't supposed to like her. In her initial episode, she arrives with a gun. It's a little jarring. She tricks that other time lord into killing herself she's trying to encourage people to buy crap on street corners or whatever it was she was doing oh yeah she was a tour guide oh it's a tour guide all of her friends around her when they re-explore her in once upon time in the flux how the division works if you don't stop killing people we'll kill you sort of thing it's a bit more of a gun for hire style doctor they also want to make her a very likable doctor she's very john purty tom baker like a bit more venusian karate and a bit more action focused they want to push oh this could be like a different style of Doctor we've not seen before, but I think also the inner little eight-year-old self watching the TV like, no, no, Doctor Who can't do this. I guess there's an open question about why does she decide to become the Doctor twice, completely independently of each other? Because as far as Jodie Whittaker's Doctor knows, William Hartnell was her first incarnation and chose the name Doctor and stole the TARDIS and went off. And then turns out you've got unknown numbers of lives prior to that that were known as the Doctor flying around in the police box TARDIS calling themselves a doctor. I do know in the initial script, the TARDIS was that big lighthouse that she's in. But then they had the idea of, oh, you dig up the grave and you see the police sign. And I think they were like, that's too good of a shot to <laughs> ignore. And it was a case of, we're going to put that visual over logic. We're happy to break canon a little bit. I think there's another time this happened as well, where they've gone with that shot. The shot came first, her digging up and seeing the TARDIS logo under the dirt as a big what, what, what sort of moment. Oh, the other one was in Flux when she turns into the Weeping Angel. They had that idea of like, we want that shot. It doesn't matter if that doesn't work with the story. We want that image. The image comes first. And I think it was brilliant seeing both those, especially digging up the TARDIS. In that series, it is for me a standout what sort of moment. This is mental. What is happening? If it was the case of, oh, that's my TARDIS there. It's this lighthouse. It hasn't got that punch. There's a lot of cases where, in canon, in the universe, it doesn't make sense. Very weird. But TV, it's a visual thing. You want those gasp moments. You kind of just have to go with the best visual sometimes. So I'm totally fine with... I think I've mentioned on any other news ones or Marvel ones we do. Canon is second to a better idea. Well, Doctor Who it certainly is. Yeah, Doctor Who is very loose. It's a time travel show. It's very easy to sort of explain away things. I suppose the ideal way to explain away or to actually explore the proper Timeless Child arc is if you had David Bradley and Joe Martin's Doctor teaming up. Well, I don't know if they ever established that Joe Martin was the first. And I forget, is Joe Martin the name of the alias or is that name of the actor? I always forget. Joe Martin is the actor. Ruth was the John Smith of that Doctor Zero. I think the idea was that she was just one of many. I think they kept it deliberately deliberately vague, yeah. Though there was the sense that she went out of the division so I think she was late stage especially in the Jadoon one where she's in hiding from the Time Lords. That's the point where she's moving from the division soldier to breaking out and then getting captured and memory arrays and stuff so I think it's somewhere late in her division chapter of 
existence. I don't know what the explanation could have been. I can't really think of one. And it would have had to be one to undo the timeless child to some degree because it's just a dumb story and it doesn't really make that much sense. I thought they were going to do something because when they introduced the entity that is time as a potential enemy for the Doctor. And I actually think that Shibnall probably planned to do stuff with this. I don't think he initially planned for this to be his last run of stuff. It was almost forced on him, it seems. After the centenary, we're going to get Russell T. Davies back and you're out, that kind of thing. I know that originally it was going to be a 10-part series 13, which then became six-part flux with initially two specials and then a third one added in because I think Flux and Series 12 were quite profitable and they were like when we want a centenary we need a Doctor Who thing so they added another one in. I don't know whether he planned for the time thing to be bigger within the specials or within his initial series. Eventually he'll probably explain. Yeah in five years time it'll be a well here's what I was going to do and then we'll be able to judge it. Yeah they've been releasing the scripts of each series after its release. We have up to Legend of the Sea Devils at the moment. I'm quite excited to see how the early drafts of the scripts and this were different. When we get to talking about Jodie Whittaker's Doctor in particular, I feel like there are a lot of real world things that have changed how the story was going to go from what we got. Oh, definitely. So let's talk about after the Force Regeneration, she finds herself on a cliff edge, which is the edge of existence or something, I think they call it. I forget the actual name of the place. Yeah, a metaphor for the leap of faith into the next person. Yeah, so the idea is that when the Doctor regenerates, the departing Doctor has to fully submit to the change, but some of them don't. So some of them linger at the edge of this cliff because they're not ready to depart yet. It makes about as much sense as anything else. I'm okay with it. It gives an excuse for the Doctor to talk to other Doctors. Yeah, it is definitely a case of it's an excuse for the classic Doctors to come back, which is fine. I'm always confused about regeneration in general in this show because I don't think they've ever really landed on what it actually is. For example, David Tennant treated it like a death, as in, I'm going to die, and then some new man will walk off and take my place. It's always been either interpreted differently or vague. Christopher Eccleston, when he was regenerating, he was like, yeah, it's just one of those things someone I've got to do. Yeah, it sort of suited his character as the Doctor. It's like, yeah, just get through it. I've always had a death wish, finally. What a death wish. Be fine. And then Matt Smith treated it like a death as well, and so did Capaldi. Capaldi was all set to just be done. This is it. Matt Smith's one had that speech about, oh yeah, everyone just kind of changes. Capaldi and Tennant, I'm pretty sure Colin Baker had to push those two off the cliff, because they did not want to go. <laughs> Definitely David Tennant, because he's coming back. Some doctors are more happy to embrace it. It's like, yeah, this is my time, or this is what happens. And some of them are raging against it. And I think that's both down to the writers, how they interpret it, or sometimes also it's just a new look at it. You've had a lot of regeneration stories. You need to sometimes add a new element to it. It's a bit like when you upgrade the operating system on your phone or your computer or something. It's the same hard drive, but things work a bit differently. I don't know if that's a great analogy, but there it is. They make that analogy in the Doctor, don't they? Same software, but different hardware. It's just acting a bit differently. Yeah, they use the sonic screwdriver as a metaphor for the Doctor. But anyway, we have all these extra Doctors, and this gimmick, let's call it that, seems to exist as a affirmation that Jodie Whittaker is worthy of being the Doctor, as in you have these past Doctors saying... Yeah, you did good. And don't ruin it for the next one. You've got to go back and reclaim a reputation because you can't ruin it for the next one. Yeah, it tends to sort of fall on William Hartnell or a version of William's Doctor. It's the same in comics and stuff or other things. They want to go like, yeah, you were a good one. Yeah. And they tend to get the earliest one to be like, yeah, you did. I can't remember his line in this. It's like, oh, you must be one of the more 
tenacious of our faces or something like that. Ultimately, this was a fan service moment. That's why it's there. It's to get the old doctors in. That's its purpose. It's nice having a doctor meets doctor one. I think everyone wants to go at it. And this is a fun way of doing it, especially with the actors who have aged out of visually looking like their 70s and 80s roles. They've explained that before when you had David Tennant meeting, was it Peter Davison in Time Crash, the oh, children yeah. thing. They explained, oh yeah, this is how you would look if I was still you. It's just the weird time thing. It's just aged you up as the way you would have normally. But yeah, obviously the older doctors, it's been decades since they were in the role. And the doctors that were chosen to appear in this episode, it was obviously just who is A, still alive, and B, available, who wants to be in this special. So that dictates who you've got. But do you think it made sense in terms of what they were trying to tell you by using those doctors? Going back to the shot first story later, it made sense in the... It allowed the Doctor to have a conversation with themselves. and Very similar to the end of Timeless Children, where Joe Martin helps the Doctor push out of the Matrix, of the prison that the Master put them in. It's another one of those sort of self-affirmation moments. But this is definitely here for fan service. I'm okay with fan service. I think it's fine. No, I'm, I'm fine with it. And we all understand the practicalities of, well, you can't have most of them. Yeah, as long as it's not just needlessly fan y It doesn't take up the bulk of the episode, and it's there to be nice. Mainly that scene is there to be nice. And the Doctor can have a bit of affirmation and a bit of push. No, no, there's still work to be done. The Master's still causing chaos. Got to sort this out sort of thing. I have to wait until my hologram tells Yaz what to do, so I'm just going to hang about at the edge of this cliff. And of course, it's not the first time we've had a Doctor hologram in Parting of the Ways... Emergency Programme 1, you had it in Blink as well. Yeah, Matt Smith talked to himself, I think, in the Hitler one. It's a nice little tool. It's a bit Superman, isn't it? The Fortress of Solitude. A bit Superman. It's the Spider-Man looking in the puddle with his mask moment where it's the, come on, get up, you can still go, that moment of the story. Yeah, I thought the hologram was fine. It's one of those where this hologram can do pretty much anything. This would have been really useful on at least a dozen occasions that I can think of. Yeah. That's the case with most stories that have gone on for a while. This would have been really handy, but we hadn't thought of it. And then they had the contrived static electricity thing that only was thrown in in this episode to implant the chip. But had the Doctor not done that to Ace and Tegan before this happened? You'd think at some point the Doctor will just implant this chip in everybody that they encounter. Yeah, I think also you need to keep it simply enough so that the youngest members of the audience can get it. If there wasn't that visual of, oh, you get a little zap, oh, it must be static or something, and, it was, and she just sort of explained, I did this earlier, a lot of people might miss it. Not necessarily just children, but also in the fast pace of the episode. It's a handy, heavy hint to be like, oh, something's going on. If it was a case of she just did it on everyone's shoulder, but no static, you wouldn't really bat an eye. Hi, Kate. Hi, Ace. How's it going or whatever? I guess you could have just done it with Yaz, and then she did that to the other companions ages ago. It's just to build up, oh, static again. Oh, okay, something's going on. Or I guess do it with Dan because he's leaving or something. I don't know. But anyway, it's a very small thing. So we had the Doctor hanging around the edge of a cliff, sideline for the episode Yaz doing all the heavy lifting, which we'll definitely talk about. What about the two returning companions? So from my point of view, I didn't know who either of these people were. We talked about in a news podcast that was concerned that the episode just wouldn't have the time to really tell me who they are. And I was okay with them in the context of the story, as in I know that they're former companions of the Doctor, and they're involved in this story. I think the introduction of Sarah Jane was way better in the Tenant era because they did a whole episode about it, telling you who she was and how that was relevant to the current time. But I'm not sure they were necessary for this story because I don't think they contributed anything really all that meaningful on their own. 
it's another fan service thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's another case of going all out. There was an interview, it was when Captain Jack was brought back in Series 12, and Christian was like, what's always bothered me about the companions is you never catch up with them. I think he said, what's Tegan and Ace and Amy and Rory up to? And it's just been one of those things that when it's your last go, you've got your bucket list of things you want to cover in your tenure. I think it's the case if we just phoned them up and we're like, yeah, are you free? Do you want to do this? And they were like, yeah, sure. Well, Amy and Rory, they lived in the 1920s or something like that and then died of old age. I think he was just pulling names out of high. It is quite coincidental that he did specifically name Ace. He's like, <laughs> oh, what's Ace and Tegan up to? I get the sense that as an 80s Who fan myself, that might be his era. I'm not sure how old he is, but the fifth and sixth and seventh doctors might have been his doctors. But this is definitely a case of this was on his bucket list. He's like, I want some classic characters. I want to just bring them in and see how they go. And again, also with the hologram thing, it was to get their doctors and their companions to meet. And it was very lovely. I think with Tegan, they established well enough what needed to be said in that interaction. They mentioned that she felt abandoned by the doctor, which was fine. And then you had the doctor saying to Tegan, I never forgot about you. I never forget about any of you. Which, again, is fine. I understood enough of what the end of their relationship was like. It was the Ace interaction. I know we talked about it offline. You were confused about it as well. A special case with Ace and the Seventh Doctor is they're the only companions that we'll never know. At the end of Doctor Who in the 80s, they just got back in the TARDIS for more adventures, and then it returned with Paul McGann in the 90s. Returned with Sylvester McCoy on his own, then he gets shot, and then he's Paul McGann. Oh, yeah. So we never found out what happened to Ace. It's been left to a thousand audiobooks, comics and books, even one by the actress Sophie Aldred has written her own book about what happened to Ace. I think it's kept deliberately vague to not give a definitive what happened. It's just a sense of, oh, there's bad blood. We didn't part on a good note. The episode seems to imply that either the Doctor was disappointed with her or she felt she let him down in some way. The impression I got from their chat is that Ace was really violent and the Doctor didn't like that. Yeah, it sort of feels like she may have gone a bit too trigger happy her character in the Sylvester McCoy era she had the Nitro 9 her explosives she had a baseball bat she was sort of the radical punk action hero character of that era I know that this is in Sophie Aldred's book because I read that one and I think it's also a thing that Chris Chimble thinks is that's all well and good in the 80s when edgy's kind of fun but I think that would have become a problem down the line with the Doctor being a pacifist the 80s mindset and then if you consider that in terms of how Doctor Who is nowadays and how characters are a bit more explored nowadays that probably would have ended badly to go to the technical side especially with flux in these specials the music's been way loud i don't know if you have the same opinion i have noticed that the sound mix is awful what are you saying especially with that scene and with sylvester mccoy's lines what's this second time i watched it i've watched it with the subtitles on iplayer so i now know what they do say to each other but i think the first time i was like it's lovely seeing them together and his doctor was very cryptic anyway and usually spoke in riddles and you got the sense he has much deeper meanings than what he's saying so that also doesn't help a lot of times drawing blocks in the specials i was like this is way too loud on the music what are you saying which didn't help as well i noticed that during the train sequence it was just a racket it's just noise yeah which i think in that sense side men are train people in danger you can't quite hear everything that's been said but nothing interesting or important is said but in these character moments it's kind of annoying also we have sasha dewan's performance like the way he performs it's a whispered rage it's very whispery and there was a lot of scenes when he's the master doctor we'll call him a lot of it on first viewing i was like shut the music up for a minute <laughs> you don't need to have the the violins or whatever chill out a bit just let him control the scene and work to his strengths 
the sound mixing has been a bit of an issue for the last, say, two series, a special series and Flux. No, I definitely agree. It's been noticeably badly mixed. Which is a shame. So did Ace call the Doctor Professor? When she travelled with him. Ace called the Doctor Professor, yeah, that was one of her gimmicks. Why? It's a gimmick. <laughs> was she a student of his, or is it just something she decided to call her? No, she was a punk 80s sort of rebel character. I'm not seeing her intro story, but I think she's a waitress on a different planet or something. She'd been pulled off Earth and she's dumped on this other planet. But yeah, she was very much just a punk 80s rebel character. She just called him Professor as a gimmick. A catchphrase, pretty much. Fair enough. The fact that Ace forgives the Doctor for treating her in the way that he did, that we don't really see from what you've told me, just has been a part of other media. The forgiveness thing I found to be a bit problematic because it sort of enables the Doctor's toxic behaviour when it comes to their companions. And this is something Moffat was trying to fix at the end of his run. After the Doctor lost Clara... It was a bit of a wake-up call to him where he's like, I just can't do this anymore. I can't keep destroying people's lives like this. But he also did it to Amy. (laughs) Yes. And then when he met up with Donna the second time, he said, oh yeah, I had a companion called Martha and I destroyed her life. So he keeps doing this. Or she or they keep doing this. It's the love and monsters line, isn't it? That's just what happens when you meet the Doctor. It's brilliant, but it is disruptive. That's just the life they live. Yeah, and then there's the whole idea of what do you do when you've live that life and you you get deposited and they tried to approach that when jack came back for that special where yaz asked that question the thing is as much as the masters regress so is the doctor the doctor's back to i'm just going to take people through time and space and ruin their lives and as long as they say that's okay i'll keep doing it she makes sure to mention that to graham and so on when she takes them on in the first series you'll never be the same fine we don't want to be the same and then that's that but the thing is it's still this toxic pattern of behavior and the Doctor never seems to hold themselves accountable for it. They just feel sad about it and then they move on and do it to someone else. So the fact that you need a companion support group, yes, of course you do, because these people are ruined. These people's lives are just upside down and the Doctor's effectively abandoned them in some cases. I'm actually surprised the companion support group didn't exist before this, to be honest, even as just a mention here and there. I and mean, Maybe it would have made more sense if Graham had been invited to something that already existed from previous companions. I thought the idea was that this was a thing. It's the way that Ace and Tegan know each other. They never met prior to this story. Took it as, this already exists, maybe as a WhatsApp guy. (laughs) These have now just been brung into this through probably Ace and Tegan. But then also Graham does say, oh yeah, set this up. But he may have set this up prior to the story beginning. He may have set this up straight after he left in 2020. But also the problem is, for the show to continue... You can't definitively resolve this because the Doctor needs a companion. Yeah, that's the status quo. But I think Moffat was onto something when he was just essentially forcing the Doctor out of companion through Bill. He sort of stumbled into him. And even with the Matt Smith Doctor, he was trying to fix it by, I'm only taking Clara on short hops and then I'm going to take her home. Which frames him as a bit of a magical being that turns up in the night and takes you on magical adventures and then brings you home before morning. That kind of stuff. Amy was doing that as well a little bit, but they were much more upset about it, as in our friends keep wondering why we're two years older than we were the last time we saw them and things like that, which didn't really come up with Clara. He would pick her up on, I think it was a Wednesday, they always said, see you next Wednesday, so you'll see me a Wednesday, and then they'd go and have an adventure and then return home. And then when she was trying to pursue a relationship with Danny, they had that montage of her being distracted by Doctor Adventures and coming back and trying to do that, and she was just strung out completely is a difficult one but i think the lack of acknowledgement of this horrific behavior that the doctor keeps displaying and then just reverting back to type with it and the fact that the companions forgive the doctor for it as well and accept it is 
a bit problematic. And I actually thought they were going to do something interesting with it because you had Dan leave at the start of the story because he's like, I almost died. I'm done with this. I almost died. That was pretty intense. <laughs> not doing this anymore. I just have to go. You've shrunk my house. I just don't want to do this anymore. And that almost sets up Yaz exploring that within herself as well, which it doesn't really. She's just kind of forced out. It's, well, I'm going to regenerate, so uh, see ya. And that was it. We'll talk about it more when we get to Yaz, but I do think that was a kindness. If she hadn't, so Yaz was in love with her doctor. Yeah. Just like most of the companions. If she'd seen them die, and then David Tennant or Shooty Gatwa show up, and it's like, it's me, your friend, and this is someone that you'd been in love with, and now it's just some dude. That's awful. That's very traumatic. So I do think in this case, it was like, that's a kind of, I'm going to die. We both pretty love each other. The Doctor loves everybody. Gaz loves her. There's no nice way to end this. So let's just say bye now. This is lovely. We've had our nice ice cream. Let's just leave it here. Yeah, though they have covered the companion rolling over between doctors in the modern era most of the time, actually, because Rose, she had two doctors that she travelled with and dealing with the change. Clara did the same. But I think with this particular storyline of Yaz being in love with her doctor, I know Rose also was in love with the David Tennant one. Yeah, it wasn't clear whether she was into the Eccleson face. But I think with this one, the idea is the thought of being in love with someone and suddenly it's someone else just saying that they're the same and they have the same memories, but it's not the person you know would be way too much. Yeah. That would be a lot. So I think it is a case of one last trip, nice memories, we've had a great time, but you don't want to see what the next Doctor is because that'd be too hard. It's very hard to mourn someone if they're there, but with a different face, but still remembering who you are. That's too weird. That's just too much to take in. So I think this is a very nice way of going like, yep, this next bit will be me. You've known this Doctor, you've known 13th Doctor. Let's not ruin this. In the case of Rose, the transformation was sort of forced on her, so there was really nothing they could do. And with Clara, she knew about the Doctor's regenerations better than anyone, really. I should met all of them. Yeah, because of the unresolved Impossible Girl arc that still hasn't been covered, really. But she had an idea of what to expect. And the whole idea was this new Doctor will need some stability, will need your help. And also with Rose, for the modern audience, that was the first generation, and you kind of need an audience person. You need the human person to be like, what is going on? <laughs> if it was just a doctor who just suddenly David Tennant, and he doesn't have to explain to anybody what's happened. As a 2005 audience, you may have heard of a generation, but you kind of need, this is how it works. I can't remember if this is a studio thingy, but you need the hand Solo <laughs> to be like, what's going on? How does this work? Which is Rose's role in that story i think i like the idea i had no problem with the idea of yaz not wanting to even see the next face because it had been too much for her but they had it right there with the dan decided to leave because it was too much for him and yaz reaching that point on her own as well it's more the doctor that makes the decision to cast her off saying i need to do this next part alone because i think yaz was all for helping her through it at least i think this is a case of an unwanted kindness she could sort of tell yaz would never have stop she would have pushed through like no i'll be fine with it but she's like you're not going to be fine with this i think this was a case of saying i know you don't want to but it really is best if we just sort of leave it here and that's just a kindness with jan though she gave rory and amy a house oh your house is destroyed it's like all right see ya <laughs> i didn't even say see ya yes i'll say see ya go and eat your cold soup or whatever it is you do go to your soup at your mom's house <laughs> and there's obviously the question of what do you do after being with the doctor. Can Yaz go back to being a police officer? Has she been gone for that long? Probably. She's gone for like five years. Who knows what timeline is anymore? But 
they set it up anyway through Kate saying, oh, yeah, I might want to recruit you for some work. And it makes sense. Yeah. In fact, it would make sense for every companion to work for unit in some capacity. Yeah. Maybe not everyone, but certainly everybody have the option. That's what Martha did. So that made sense. Yaz might. I don't know. Doesn't seem his style. Graham just freelances. He goes about with a psychic paper. I think if she was doing any of those, she'd probably freelance with Graham and Ryan, maybe. I'm guessing the actor plays Ryan was filming something at the time because it's just mentioned that, oh yeah, he's in wherever it is. As far as I'm aware, he's just happy not. I think the idea was he's just like, I'm good. He did his time on the show. He had fun. I'm sure already he was cast in something. Maybe I'm making that up. He has got all of the roles. It's probably more likely an availability thing. Which is fine. But in terms of Yaz as a character, I actually feel like she's a walking missed opportunity. Because of the gang that she had at the start of her run, I thought Yaz was the most interesting of them, but she also had the least to do for most of it. The first series was really about Graham and Ryan's relationship. Ryan coming to accept him as a grandfather figure, where he rejected that, and then Yaz was just there hanging on. And then when they both left, it was, oh, we're going to do Flux, but here's Vinder and here's, what's her name? The Irish girl. Belle? Yeah, that's it. That's the character I'd like to see again. Even though she wasn't that well written or well characterised, I thought the actress was great. I thought she really brought some life to her. Three has always been too many. Two is the golden ratio. Every time there's been three, someone's been left out. One's not enough. Two is the perfect dynamic, but and three is too crowded. Yeah, in the first series, she didn't get much to do. Picked up a bit in the second one. She had a few more standout episodes, and then it really picked up with Flux. But again, then we were like, Dan. Well, they had the mental health story with her that I found really interesting. Yeah, we had that. Uh, can you hear me? They didn't go into too much detail, but I think they implied heavily that she was suicidal. They may have known how that character was going to go and it may have been a thing with her comes to terms with who she is the sexuality and stuff it's left to be oh yeah she's had a troubled teenage life and i think the idea was that she was probably in a suicidal state i think that's one of the standouts of that series as well when they do get interesting so there was a lot of interesting potential stuff and stuff they could have explored but also i think this is just sort of a curse if they'd brung in yaz's romantic feelings in series 12 would we have more time to explore them properly? I know that in that series, they knew that's the sort of angle they were going. And also, when it is a case of sexuality, you don't always know. It takes time. I think they sort of also wanted to imply she's discovering herself how she travels. And there was hints through and through, but it was maybe not fully her character realising that these were more than just fondness or friendly sort of feelings. Yeah, it was a different approach to the companion falls in love with the Doctor arc, because with Rose, it was just... Yeah, they're both attractive, so why not? And Martha it was very much, a, well, that's the most remarkable person I've ever met. Of course I'm in love with them. And then Donna was very much, nah. Yeah, nah. We're just friends. And that was what the Doctor needed at that point as well. It's like, yeah, I don't want another one to be following me around like a lost puppy. I want someone to just bounce off and challenge me and things like that, which is great. And then the Matt Smith Doctor was incapable of returning those types of feelings because he was just too alien. Although there was a couple of points where he seemed to be kind of into Clara. When I have gone back to watch Stephen Moffat episodes, they're very horny. <laughs> but I think that's Stephen Moffat in general. That's his style. That's how he writes. I remember Clara's introduction. He just casually gives her lines about, you know, I was going through a phase. I kissed a girl called Nina and stuff like that. That's just the kind of thing he does. Yeah, especially with River Song as well. Yeah, his female characters are always fluid with their sexuality. I remember one of the children needs specials with... The TARDIS inside the TARDIS and Amy comes out of it and then the other Amy that's there is really into herself. That kind of stuff. Yeah, it gets creepy. You can tell totally imagine a team of like, <laughs> typing it. This is unrelated entirely, but I did a creative writing masters and 
my tutor was like, everyone has a core thing on your mind that you're right. Some people it's sex. Some people it's power. For me, apparently it's food. <laughs> Everything I wrote was like, just write about food all the time. You're just really hungry. <laughs> so if you ever write Doctor Who, it'll be a very hungry era of Doctor Who. It's very hungry. Everyone's always meeting in cafes or buying a sandwich or whatever. Your doctor would bring back the jelly babies. We'd always have jelly babies. Yeah. So have a jelly baby. Just take five minutes. Have a jelly <laughs> and also with Bill, we had a very openly gay character. But also that's not everyone's experience. So having someone who is discovering themselves is also important, especially for younger fans to also do as well. It's good to have both representation of people who are very aware of who they are and people who are figuring it out. Definitely, yeah. And then when you have the companions being in love with the Doctor, it tends to be when they're a physical match in terms of age. So that's why Clara showed no interest in Peter Capaldi, because even though he's the same age as the Matt Smith Doctor, he's physically middle-aged, whereas Matt Smith was physically young. And when she was on Trenzalore and forced to tell the truth, she talked about fancying him and stuff. Yeah, there's a very funny interview with Peter Davison recently, where he's like, why didn't my Doctor get to her? <laughs> I think they should have had that in the 80s. More of the girls I travel with should have kissed me. <laughs> then you have your daughter shacking up with you, essentially. <laughs> but I think that may have been a bit of... Grumpy old, why don't I get to kiss people? For those that don't know what I meant there, Peter Davison's daughter is married to David Tennant. Is George Tennant, yes. She also played the Doctor's daughter in an episode. For people who don't know, the fifth Doctor was played by Woody Allen. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those weird coincidences, I suppose, isn't it? The idea of, oh yeah, we introduced yeah. this character and then David Tennant ended up falling in love with her and now they're married and have children. Another fun Peter Davison quote was, what's the weirdest present that Doctor Who fan has ever given you? And he said, grandchildren. Grandchildren, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy stuff it feeds into the craziness of the show in a way my headcanon with the doctor is the doctor should never reciprocate the feelings that a companion has because every doctor to some extent considers themselves distanced from humanity they don't think of them in that way you even had lines where david tennant said oh that's disgusting and christopher eccleson referred to them as stupid apes and i was thinking also the line being immortal isn't living forever it's watching everyone else die the peter capaldi line i was thinking about this today when the doctor meets a new human friend or mortal friend would be like, by the way, I'm like a billion and I can die whenever and I'll be fine. <laughs> Just so you know, <laughs> if you get shot, that's done. I'll be all right. The regeneration conversation doesn't seem to happen with everybody, does it? Just so you know what risk assessments I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thousands of years old. So in the case of the Whitaker Doctor, it was Dan that made Yazzie's feelings known to her, wasn't it? Yeah. And she pretends that she doesn't know about them. But Dan says, no, you do. You obviously know about them. She just doesn't want to deal with it because she doesn't know what to do with it, which, again, is fine. And yeah. I don't know if people are disappointed by the fact that they didn't get together. I'm not. I found it to be perfect because this was never going to happen. I thought I would be annoyed. I was like, if they don't kiss in this one, I'm going to be right pissed off. I mean, the kiss doesn't have to be romantic. We could have still kissed in a non-romantic way. The way it ended, it was really lovely. Like This was a kind of tearjerker episode, and it was that scene where they both know it's one last trip. They're just having ice cream. Such a nice, human, quiet moment. They're both sort of reflecting on how they feel, but also what they don't get to share together, but what they have shared together. Reflectively, I'd much prefer this than if they had done a big dramatic kiss, and then she was like, all right, going to go die. See all this tragedy. It's the Romeo and Juliet tragedy of sometimes you meet people at the wrong time. It's one of those sort of things. Yeah, I think this was really lovely. It was definitely my favourite moment of this episode was that final moment with those two. It was a very lovely, thoughtful, emotional, quiet, human way of dealing with the unsaid. Ultimately, this isn't going to happen. And I think Yaz ultimately knew that there was no way it could ever happen because there was lots of cases of her 
challenging the doctor on keeping information to herself. So I think there was an acknowledgement of there's just behaviours that you will continue to exhibit that mean that you'll never be able to be truly open with someone. They'll always keep them at distance. The River Song rule one, the doctor lies. I think that's consistent across all incarnations where they'll just essentially invent a backstory for themselves and choose to remember things in certain ways. You had that with the Time Lords, when they came back, it was a bit of a cop-out that Russell T. Davies did. It's like, oh yeah, they shouldn't come back because they're awful. I thought you said they were great. Yeah, that's just how I want to remember them. That makes a kind of sense when they're never coming back. It's, I'm just going to remember them as my people. And then when they come back, they're essentially the enemy because Capaldi hated them. They have always, in the old days, been the enemy. But it is a weird case of the Doctor is the eternal optimist. They still want to see the good in what they do, but also it's the ultimate power leads to ultimate corruption thing. But again, they'll always remember the fondness of home. It's like how you remember your hometown. I still love Blackpool. It's a child-filled, sticky nightmare, but it's still mine. It's still my home and no city, like if you're born in Edinburgh. It's a lovely place, but there's people everywhere and it's not all going to be perfect. So that makes sense. There's an acknowledgement of the fact that, well, you could never be completely honest, so a relationship would never work. There's also the fact that the Doctor just is an alien, and they see themselves as alien, and they never see humans as a viable connection in that way. Again, that makes sense. The only person a Doctor could ever really hook up with is another Time Lord, apart from River, which is a weird case. She was basically a Time Lord, I think. I guess she was a hybrid, almost. Yeah. I think also, especially with this incarnation, this Doctor, she was quite averse to difficult conversations. I remember the one where Graham says how he's worried about his cancer coming back and she just doesn't know how to deal with it. Which is relatable. Someone starts crying and I just run away. It's like, yeah, I don't know what to do, sorry. That's why I've got other companions. Just uh, you deal with that. I'll be over here. And it was even when the Doctor found out that her people had been wiped out, she just didn't talk about it. Those kinds of things. Yeah, just sort of bottling things up. Obviously, it's not healthy. And I suppose this incarnation might be remembered as just unhealthy coping mechanisms. Yeah, that's definitely a part of it. <laughs> definitely one of her quirks. All this good work I did when I was Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi is just gone because I became this dismissive, running from my problems type. I think every Dutch has been a little bit sort of... I wouldn't be surprised if Matt was like, ooh, a bounty castle, whatever, let's go play on this. And he just goes up and has a cry for a yeah. bit. <laughs> Eccleston, he was survivor's guilt. That was his thing. And then David Tennant was starting to process it to the point where he could be in the same room as a Dalek and not be filled with murderous rage. And Matt Smith was, well, I think John Hurt summed it up with the one who regrets and the one who forgets. Matt Smith's the one that tries to forget it all. And Peter Capaldi's the one that's a bit of a mess as a result of all these previous decisions. And he does his best. Yeah, he's having a hard time. And then Jodie Whittaker's back to just going to try and start fresh. And then it turns out, well, I can't start fresh because I'm going to find out about all these old lives that I don't remember. And there's no fresh start for me. Yeah, it's a definite kick, you know, one where you're trying to, okay, back to being the doctor again. And then all this comes up, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> what did you think of the catalyst for the regeneration? I was really disappointed by it. We had another Russell T. Davies era thing that annoys me as in, the master, oh, look, what you did to yourself is killing you. That's it. You're done forever now, and I'm just going to leave you to blow up on this planet. But there was no real defeat as such. It was just the Doctor couldn't avoid a laser, and that's what triggers the regeneration. I have a soft spot for a non-epic way. I think this was just, again, it's a final bit of cruelty. But I think some kind of emotional trigger for it, rather than it's, oh yeah, here's a laser that you couldn't get out of the way of. I quite like how slut that shit is. Whereas she just went out to free the Quaronks and destroy that planet thingy and with his last house of strength he just sort of 
murders her. It's the last middle finger to that specific one. It's not definite, but it's annoying. It's one tick on my tally mark of which one I managed to bump off. Did you spot the comparison to the parting of the ways where you had the Doctor wake up and it was Yaz piloting the TARDIS and the Doctor was like, what's going on? What's been happening? How long was I asleep? And that's exactly the way it is when Rose wakes up Oh yeah, in the parting of the ways. It's very similar. That's nice. I not noticed that. I noticed a lot of references to prior finales. Everybody pressing buttons on the TARDIS. That was very Journey's End. Last of the Time Lords was in there as well. Yeah. I think it's the element of finale. You're always going to go be your grandest thing. Sometimes ideas are going to come back. There's most likely purposeful references. Oh yeah, definitely. When you're going to have all these characters, you kind of want them all to go on the TARDIS and have a bit of a go. And even the Doctor's final words were a bit of a riff on the end of time. The tag, you're it. More the sentiment of them rather than the actual words themselves. But it's a very similar theme, the idea of, all right, let's do this. The regret as well, the regret of everything that won't be experienced. Oh, yeah, the uh, I won't get to see it thing. I'm not ready to end this life. I've really enjoyed it. They always tend to be with a bit of, I'm going to miss being me, but also I want to see who's next sort of thing. They tend to sort of mix between the two most of the time. It was a different one from Capaldi's sentiment, as in the don't screw this up, future me. Yeah, I mean, that'll get a bit overly poetic. Yeah. Obviously, I knew regeneration was coming, and I was just disappointed with the way that it just happened. It just seemed like a bit of an afterthought. I quite enjoy the small... Again, it's similar to when David Tennant regenerated, and it's Wilf caught in a little glass cube. But that was fine, because that was a choice that the Doctor had to make. That was a different sort of cruel twist but i quite like when it is the epic you know you can put daleks and sad men and the master and the destruction of everything and so much going on but then actually it's just a little something that ends up doing them in i always quite got a soft spot for those kind of ones it could have been as simple as the degeneration was just too much and triggered the change i mean that may have been a bit when peter capaldi's doctor died and it was a long thing he was fighting off it may have been a bit too similar i quite like that it was just a one last mean thing the master got to do capaldi and whitaker were similar in the sense of they could choose when it was going to happen because peter capaldi was violently fighting the off the change whereas jodie whitaker was sitting there with her glowing hand eating ice cream just yeah at some point yeah she's holding it off just for an extra goodbye thing but again that added to the niceness of that final bit that bit was great yeah one thing that concerns me about this version of the Doctor, though, is how comfortable she seems to be with genocide, because she gets offered to wipe out the Daleks from a Dalek, and she's like, yeah, I'll do that. That sounds great. Let's figure out how to do this. And it's not the first time she's wanted to do that. During Flux, it was, let's throw the Flux in front of all these ships and just kill everybody. It's great. She seems to be very bloodthirsty, although they never acknowledge that she's bloodthirsty, because whenever... For example, David Tennant would go too far. You'd have someone go, whoa, Doctor, slow down. What are you doing? But this doesn't happen with this one. Yeah, I think it's more opportunist than Wonder. But then you had a whole story in the Peter Capaldi era about do I have the right to wipe out the Daleks? Which follows on from the Tom Baker story, doesn't it? Yeah. Maybe I should have done that. I don't know. It's complicated. I think that's just getting old. You have so much more mercy. You know, like, yeah, whatever. Kill him. <laughs> do it, man. Yeah, it's just wipe out the Daleks. The idea of a Dalek feeling that the Daleks are no longer committed to the purity that they started with, that's an interesting idea. Would have been great to do something with it. Again, like I was saying about some of the opportunities, it's a nice little hook for an idea, but there's not enough time really for that to become the main story. It's kind of just rusty again, isn't it? Yeah, it's not the first time that they've done this with Dalek characters. But I like the angle of the Daleks were created to preserve the Khaled race and we've just forgotten about that we don't do that anymore yeah we're just Nazis now now we're just weird genetically 
mutated Nazis that live inside tanks. To go with the historical parallels, the Nazis did start off as a, no, we just want what's right for the German citizen. We want to buy bread without a wheelbarrow full of cash, thanks. Yeah, every politics thing. It starts off as just to solve this problem, and then when they get in power, it's like, actually, we're going to be awful, yay! It's a nice angle to acknowledge that, like any real-life fascism, it starts off, not innocent, but it starts off as a less destructive thing. It's just for the good of the specific, in this case, race, or in historical terms, it could be a fringe of people or a group. And then it always goes too far because that's how power works. Everything just goes awful. Do you think they'll ever address the fact that there's steel hanging out of every volcano on Earth? Nah, fine. It reminds me of Eternals, actually, which ends with the head of a celestial poking out of the ocean. It's never brought up again. Or the Earth's a big transformer. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, the Earth is a spider hatchery in this universe, isn't it? Yeah, but I can also in Dutch Who. Well, they drowned all of them, so it's fine. Everyone conveniently forgets. It's fine. Everyone forgets every Dalek attack and Cyberman attack and monster invasion. So yeah, this time we end up with a bit of steel out of the volcanoes. Someone will tidy it up and it'll be fine. What did you think of the Jodie Whittaker final story being essentially about the Doctor without including the Doctor as such? As in, it's about the influence that the Doctor exerts on the companions, the world and the universe around them. I do like when it's, especially when you have all these companions coming back, and they all have different experiences with different types of Doctor. It's fun to explore. It's kind of what I was going into earlier on about wanting to know how the script developed. Because in this one, obviously, Jodie Wick, she said in the Q&A afterwards that she was pregnant during filming of this. And it is quite a static. There's not much running compared to much things. She's standing at cliff edges or she's in the thing. And I want to know, I don't know what stage she was at or anything, but was there more limitations on, can't be too strenuous, so we need to work around physical limits as an actor. And if that altered the script or brung in some more stuff where she's a hologram but in terms of being a sort of character study of the doctor and what they mean to different people either kate who is willing to put herself in the immediate threat of cyber conversion she's like oh the doctor's coming it's fine absolute loyalty again yaz's extreme loyalty absolute trust and then tegan and ace they've had bad blood with their doctors it's always interesting when you do the because you don't get much chance, because obviously the Doctor's in most of their stories. They're very central in solving the solution. So it's nice when you can put them to the side for a bit and look at the humans who live in her shadow, having a bit of a chat. Yeah, and I like the capable companions. There hasn't been too many of them in the modern era, really, because Rose was just kind of strung along. She didn't really know how to do anything. Martha was intelligent, but if the Doctor was incapacitated, she wouldn't be much use. Amy and Rory, they were smart, but along the same lines. Clara could pilot the TARDIS, eventually. Bill couldn't, and so on. Yeah. I like capable companions, because that was one thing that annoyed me about Rose. It's, well, if she wasn't here, the story wouldn't need to change that much, really. Yeah, I really love the mad assortment of post-its. Yeah, this is what this button does. That was good. And she wasn't that well-developed, really, across the run. But she is very much that type of character that would just throw herself into this and learn as much as she can. Yeah. Which really worked for me. And then having her step up to the plate when the Doctor is incapacitated and try to figure out the problem, that again is suited to her characterization And focusing on the positive influence the Doctor can have, because a lot of other stories do fixate on the negative. For example, in Journey's End, where they're making the point about, oh yeah, the Doctor doesn't fight, but he really encourages other people to do it for him. And all the companions were setting up a really awful plan, really destructive plan. Since Good Man Goes to War, the whole vibe of, you don't use guns, but you just fashion them. You get everyone to fight for you. And Danny Pink called him a general. 
Yeah. Likened him to a general. Although when Goodman goes to war, he blows up a Cyberman fleet. Yeah, that's weird. It's not very well delivered most of the time. Think back to Journey's End. Jack and Sarah Jane. I got a nuke, hasn't he? Yeah, it's in a necklace or something. Martha's about to destroy the Earth and so on. And Davros says, Doctor, you did this to these people. You turned these people out. He's like, oh yeah, I did. Look all these nukes they have. It's like a million nukes. Maybe I should rethink my strategy here. But with Yaz, it seems she's learned the better parts of what the Doctor stands for. I can fly the TARDIS and get people to help. That's it. It worked with her character. We had it with Clara and the Raven, where this is how it can go wrong. This is what happens if the risk doesn't work. But it's nice with this, where, yeah, she's just capable and good, and she has the right mindset, both from her experience in other adventures, and they were separated in the Flux event, where she's built up enough capability, where she knows how to investigate. She's very capable without always having to the doctor to hold her hand unlike quite a few of the other ones. Yeah, which was good. It was good as a final outing for this Doctor. It was, I did something good for these people, or for this person. Hello. I still need to work on my goodbyes because I usually ruin people's lives and and really stop doing that. Yeah, but that's how the show works. It's just too built in. I don't know how you fix that, but we'll see what happens in the ensuing era. So do you have anything that you want to bring up about this episode before we talk about what comes next? Or speculate on what comes next. No, other than as a classic Who fan, I really like the stuff where Peter Davison and Sylvester Coy met their things, even if it's a little confusing. It's just lovely. I think we've covered it pretty well. So yeah, I think we're happy to move on. I feel like I would like Sylvester McCoy's Doctor. Maybe it's because I've met Sylvester McCoy and I really like him. I think if I was recommending old ones, the Sylvester McCoy ones are the closest to the new series. He's a lot of fun. Just because he can move from being a bit of a goof to... Um, absolute general in a sentence. <laughs> it's really fun to watch. He's very unpredictable, which is really good. He was the one that was when the BBC were trying to kill it, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that started a while ago. But yeah, he was the one when it finally fell. Yeah, so maybe he didn't quite get his best opportunity as well. I have interviewed Sylvester McCoy. It was about a play that he was in with another doctor, Robert Picardo, which was really cool. Oh yeah, for his Finn show. Yeah, so... Go back and listen to that. I'll be in the show notes. Really cool meeting him. And he was in The Hobbit as well. He was yeah. <laughs> Radagast the Brown, just with bird crap in his hair and stuff. Oh, yeah. I remember those movies. <laughs> and he was in an episode of Still Game. A Sensate, The Old Man of Hoy. He should be in more stuff. He's really good. How old is he anyway? He must be getting on a bit. He was in his 40s when he was the Doctor. That was 1988. So yeah, he be getting on. Obviously, we had Paul McGann here, who was the only one not wearing robes in the weird time place. That was brilliant. It must have been his demand. It's like, no, I don't want stupid robes. I want to stand out. I want to upstage everyone. Before too much time passes, they really need to get him a proper miniseries of some sort. I would not be surprised if the Disney Plus Paul McGann series, (laughs) if they go the Marvel Star Wars route and we get more spin-offs, he'll get something, I reckon. And that'd be great. I'd love it. Well, he proved himself in that four minutes short or however long it was for the 50th anniversary. He's really good. And I think it also helped all the Doctors we saw in this have done the big finish and uh, the story. So though not physically, they slip back into the role every couple of months when they're recording and he's had a chance to modernise his eighth Doctor. So it's one of those no-brainer choices if you're doing a spin-off. Is Peter Capaldi the only Doctor that Big Finish is missing other than the ones that were dead before they started? They don't have Matt Smith, Peter Capaldi as well. We'd love to get Jodie Whittaker in the future, but that's a fair way off yet. And I suppose John Hurt. Oh yeah, John Hurt. He won't be doing it because he's dead. So that won't be happening. Matt Smith's the one that hasn't come back to it yet. Interesting. Nah, he's too busy being Morbius. Too busy doing Morbius or Game of Thrones or whatever else or, he's doing. Other stuff. 
which is fair. You don't have to go back. Yeah, it's funny when you look at the layers of success of former Doctor Who actors. You've got Jenna Coleman, who's Queen Victoria, and other successful stuff. Karen Gillan's in Marvel. She's done the best, I think. If you go from who's done the best to who's not done the best, I think Karen Gillan's done the most. But David Tennant's done a lot of good prestige stuff since then. Yeah, he did a lot of big finish during COVID. The amount of stuff he recorded in 2020 during the first lockdown was more than the actual Doctor episodes he did as the Doctor. <laughs> I think he's up to like 2025. He's like, just keep giving me scripts because I'm really bored. Did his wife do any? I think she's done a few years as well. I don't think they have yet met, but they'll meet again, I'm sure, in the Big Finish series. Yeah, or even in the upcoming series at some point. Anything could happen, really. I'd be interested to see if Matt Smith ever turns up to do the Big Finish stuff. Not that I'll ever dip my toe into that because I don't have time for the stuff I want to do as it is. I feel like that's a black hole I just do not want to get sucked into. It's a whole thing, and it can be quite expensive. You have to get them on sale, but it's a slippery slope. Do you know? <laughs> okay, let us discuss what's coming next then. The episode ends with Jodie Whittaker's regeneration, and she turns into... David Tennant, clothes and all for some reason, which is a big question. And well, it's all a big question. And Russell T. Davies has confirmed that David Tennant is playing the 14th Doctor. So he is not the 10th Doctor again. He is a new Doctor with an old face. No, he's the 14th with Shooting Gatwa being the 15th. Which wasn't the case a few weeks ago or a few months ago when they announced Shooting Gatwa. They announced him as the 14th. Oh no, they announced him as the next one. Oh, okay. A while ago we discussed some David Tennant rumours and that all stemmed from he was always announced as the next actor to play the Doctor, which is also not true, but he's the next new actor to play the Doctor, but they were very secretive about numbering. I guess everybody assumed and it became common knowledge, yeah. Yeah, obviously when it was reported on various websites he said the 14th Doctor, but the actual press release was unnumbered. So David Tennant has played the 10th Doctor, the 11th Doctor and the 14th Doctor, technically. But also the 11th Doctor, the 12th Doctor, and the 15th Doctor, if you include John Hart in the numbering. Yeah, and the disembodied hand clone of himself. The Metacrisis Doctor. The Metacrisis Doctor. Who is still out there. Could come back at any time. Kick about, kick about in the multiverse. The Disney Rose Tyler series will <laughs> feature David Tennant. Probably. As John Smith, I imagine they'll call him. Yeah. So the regeneration of David Tennant, some people said they were surprised by it. I wasn't. I was kind of expecting it. It's one of those things that if the filming stuff had somehow been managed to stay quiet and we hadn't known that David Tennant was coming back, that would have been one hell of a surprise. Yeah, it's one of those things that's unfortunate. It's just too difficult. They just had to tell everybody. Yeah, but... I didn't expect the regeneration to happen with the clothes. I'm assuming that'll come up in the story. There's definitely going to be interference going on. Neil Patrick Harris is up to something. We'll find out what. They've already established that the Doctor can revisit old faces because Tom Baker turning up in the 50th. Yeah. It's heavily implied that I'm you in the future with an old face that's now old. It's in the world of purely speculation, just with a sense of the many catchphrases of what, what, what sort of thing is. This has gone wrong in some way. Or it's just a surprise. I'm going to guess this is a deliberate a hijacking or some such. One actual story I wouldn't mind seeing, because they've established that the Doctor gets his faces or her faces from people they've met or can do. It'd be interesting if they did a story where the Doctor meets a bunch of faces that inspired some incarnations. Yeah. It probably wouldn't be that good, to be honest. And I thought the explanation of why Peter Capaldi's Doctor looks like Caecilius, I think his name was, was Pretty crap. Oh, it's to remind me to help people. There's a thousand faces you could have had by that logic. We've used Pit Capaldi a lot, so we've got to kind of explain it. 
He also looks like that guy in Torchwood, but let's not worry about that. Don't worry about it. But David Tennant back, a big shock about it. I think his personality will be pretty close to the Tenth Doctor. Yeah, I think we're getting basically the Tenth Doctor again. Essentially, yeah, it's just a second go-around, I think. And it's also a very smart choice for the 60th anniversary, because imagine chucking Shooty Gatwa in there, saying, right, first story, also the 60th anniversary of the franchise. Yeah, I think he'll have stuff to do. Obviously, we've seen in the next time trailer that Fifteen's not happy about it. <laughs> he's having a right go wherever he is. So you think he's waiting on the edge of existence and think, it was supposed to be my turn. They're wearing the same costume, so this may be post the next regeneration or midway through, whatever happens. But it's better to do a fresh start in 2024 and a proper reboot. Like you're saying, strength for the show that it can reboot for a fresh audience, which is way easier when you're not also having to do a big bombastic celebration of an anniversary year for a show. I do think that there must have been a plan at some point for Chris Shibnall to do the 60th anniversary and part of that was going to be celebrities playing all these hidden Doctors that we don't know about. Yeah, this one, especially with the old Doctors as well, felt like if this was the 60th anniversary and you do have Smith McCoy and Colin Baker and Paul McGann and everybody, it's suitable. It's a suitable plan. Yeah. But I guess also when Jodie Whittaker decided to leave, you might have to change your plans around and filming schedules and COVID and all those things. But it makes sense for the 60th anniversary, let's get the most popular Doctor back. Yeah, exactly. And do a couple of stories with him. We're getting three specials, apparently around about this time next year, time of recording, November 2023. I can't remember if it's three, including a Christmas one, or three and then a Christmas one. I think it's three and a Christmas one, so four in total. But three David Tennant ones, definitely. Yeah. And then a Christmas one. Or New Year. Yeah, a, a festive period one. I'd rather a New Year. Christmas is too much going on. I don't want to bring back Christmas specials. They were all rubbish. Plus, I review them. I don't want to be sitting there writing a review on Christmas night. It's annoying. New Year's Day is fine. I don't do anything. There's nothing happening on New Year's Day. Everyone's hung over. It's perfect. Let me time my steak pie for when Doctor Who comes on, and I'll be happy. Yeah. I think it's a better slot. But we'll see if Russell T. Davies agrees with that. big reveal that happened recently was that international distribution will be handled by Disney. Yeah. It's going to be in Disney+. Plus, and apparently there's going to be some money from Disney to, to pay for the production of the show. That's nice. Especially with, obviously, the BBC is always under threat. Um, Lassif is always under threat, so you can get some Disney money. Well, Russell T Davies was brought back because the BBC wanted to make Doctor Who a contender in the prestige sci-fi fantasy arena, which it currently isn't. Yeah, I think definitely since Christian Rill started in 2017 to now, with The Mandalorian... Marvel shows, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones. They want it to compete at that level. They want it to be as cinematic television as, say, Star Trek and stuff. And all the shows that have got bigger budgets and more things they can play around with. When Russell T. Davies was doing the show before, it was huge. The US loved it and globally it had an audience and it was capturing a lot of people's attention. But it was also a far less cluttered television landscape. Exactly. And also it was just spacey stuff was cool it was the right sort of post fantasy towards the tail end of harry potter and lord of the rings sort of style and you had things like dot two and the big bang theory and the star trek movies it went spacey and it was just sort of the right time for dot two to be in vogue and it had two big spin-offs you had torchwood and sarah jane adventures they were running with it as well their quality was Debatable, especially Torchwood. I think a lot of people like Sarah Jane. I didn't engage with it, but it's not for I didn't, me. I didn't watch it, yeah. Although the Capaldi era, was it they had Class as a spin-off? Yeah, I don't think anyone watched that. 
Yeah, it wasn't apparently not very good. But that's been it, really. And then it just became another show, and it's kind of forgotten about. I think Chris Chibnall, with his questionable writing for a lot of people, really started killing it in terms of international appeal. So it became this thing about the BBC saying, we have this property and we want it to be a contender. We want it to be at pace with everything. I mean, that would also have been... Rusty Davis's vision for coming back as well is like if I come back, I know how TV's sort of going, and I want us to be on this sort of level. So, yeah, it's sensible. It does feel weird initially saying Doctor Who on Disney Plus is like, Ugh. Yeah. well, as I understand that Disney don't have any creative input, but maybe they will. They will. I think it's a case of they won't in Doctor Who, but the spin-offs could be Disney. But yeah, as terms of an international streaming service, everyone knows what Disney is. <laughs> it's a good one to go with. Don't give it to HBO. Wonder if they'll put some of the certainly post two thousand five stuff on there. I imagine they will. I think so. Yeah, I think this will be a case of they'll want the main Duck Two show and they'll want other stuff happening all, not all the time. But when Duck Two's in production for its following season, they'll want something set in that world to sort of fill the void. Yeah. Although when it comes to spin-offs, I can't think of anything that I would actually be all that interested in watching. The Companions working for Unit is an obvious idea, but I don't want that, really. I don't think it'd be that interesting. If I was to pitch any, definitely do Paul McGann's Doctor. He is very popular amongst Doctor Who fans, and it's essentially just another series of Doctor Who. Maybe a master thing, but also it's up to the writers. They can think of something, but maybe a little animated thing could be nice, or creating some of the old lost ones from scripts could be a thing. If it's Disney, and it's not only Disney who will milk things for money, the BBC will do it too. It's a content plan. They'll make as much as they can out of this. Well, the thing with Doctor Who is, I don't think it's like Star Trek in the way that Star Trek, you can do spin-offs because you can just do the same thing or a similar thing with different characters on a different ship. Doctor Who revolves around a single character. Yeah, you can't just have another TARDIS with another Time Lord who's just got the same idea. Yeah, stuff like Star Trek or Star Wars or Marvel, it's a universe of people, whereas this is focused on the Doctor and their story and their adventures. And there's only so far you can stretch out of that before it becomes too separate from what people want. Yeah, and for me, from my point of view, I'm going to struggle to want to watch something Doctor Who-ish that doesn't have the Doctor in it. I think that's why I was saying about class. I think Pei Capaldi was maybe in one of those or I think the Weeping Angels were in one of those, but otherwise, people didn't know it was a Doctor Who show. <laughs> also, it was a point where Doctor Who wasn't as watched as it was. If Class came out at the same time as Torchwood, it would have been way more popular. I think when something is essentially just another CBBC show, it's easy to not know what it is, <laughs> and then that's why it doesn't work as well. I was just about interested in Torchwood, but the first season where it's, oh yeah, it's Doctor Who-ish stuff, but swearing. Yeah, it's edgy. It got better in season two when it took itself a bit more seriously and decided that, you know what, we should just cut the swearing because it doesn't work it peaked with children of earth yeah at the time it was probably kind of cool because he had the van with the blue lights and stuff but i think if i went out to watch it I'd be like oh this is very mid noise <laughs> well the problem with torchwood is a lot of it was problems where you would think why isn't the doctor here this is huge this is definitely something the doctor would be involved in yeah that's also a limit of your scale with a show like that yeah. And with the cards like this. Yeah, they'd show up. So it should just be a bunch of adventures that the Doctor wouldn't notice. Yeah. But when you have a giant energy-sucking creature walking through Cardiff, that's a Doctor problem. When you have it suddenly that nobody on Earth can die, that is a Doctor problem, etc. Yeah. It's just kind of silly. So we'll see what happens here. And Disney, with creative control, some people think that might remove the kitsch factor that Doctor Who 
is known for. I would hate to see that go. I would hate to see that Britishness disappear, as in, yeah, let's just get comedians playing roles. I think also Disney know what they're doing and they'll know people will like, oh no, we want that. Still sort of homemade sense to it. So I think they'll find the balance of we can push the budget and we can push what access and stuff it has. But they also, they know what it is about things that work. They know why Star Wars works or Marvel works. They're not blind to what people want. I mean, they'll be like, we know people like it this sort of style. We know this this is its charm and that's what's making it successful. So I'm confident that they won't deviate too much. They'll keep that sort of feeling because that's what people want, pretty much. It works for both new viewers who have heard about it and old viewers who recognise it. Disney are very clever that way. They'll know what audience they're playing to. Although not Everybody would shed a tear if the silliness disappeared. One of our ranks in particular, Aaron, saw the Masters Rasputin dance out of context and just thought it was ridiculous. And then I sent him a link to the Sound of Drums, which is what that moment was referencing. And he thought that was equally ridiculous. So it's not going to be for everybody. Aaron needs a injection of silliness. <laughs> Get on the silly train, Aaron. His comment, I'm not the target audience for Doctor Who, am I? No. Well, maybe not, but sometimes I think it takes the silliness a bit too far, but I quite like when it leans into it occasionally. Like the Sound of Drums example, I think, was a bit too out there. It didn't really work. But the Rasputin one did, particularly because you had a Dalek and a Cyberman look at each other as if to say, what on earth is this? Who are we dealing with? Who's this guy? No, that's the fun. You can't get rid of, I'm a big fan of silly. And the show is very silly. It has to be deployed properly, though. I think sometimes they just do it for silliness sake. It can't undermine the threat. I think when Missy did a dab, that's too silly. That doesn't really work. (laughs) The doctor sitting on top of a tank playing an electric guitar. That's too silly. I think that worked, though. I think that worked in context because they explained why he was behaving that way. I remember thinking that being like, "Mm, this is a bit cringe. (laughs) Yeah, so there'll be things that work for people and things that don't. It's an interesting era for the show because the promises that it's going to completely change, whether it will or not, is another story, and I hope it doesn't completely change because I don't want it to lose that appeal. It never completely changes. Just TV and storytelling always evolve, and you have to sort of evolve with it, but it'll always keep its part. Yeah, well, we know what it's going to be emulating in terms of the prestige sci-fi stuff because when it came back, Russell T. Davies was trying to emulate stuff like Buffy. That was his inspiration at the time, but now, what is it? And I do hope he's improved as a Doctor Who writer as well because I thought some of his stuff was crap. The sheer garbage that he did. Like, the Bad Wolf story doesn't work. Torchwood, again, you're just referencing Torchwood once a week until... In fact, they tell you what it is really early on. And I thought the Journey's End episode was awful. And actually, I find that 80% of the end of time is rubbish. I think his strength is his people. Harriet Jones, former Prime Minister, or Linda Witherwire. Characters we've not seen for 20 years. They stand out in their human way, and that's definitely his thing. And I'm sure that when he stopped 2010, 13 years, he'll be better. He'll have honed on those things. The end of time, I thought, was mostly rubbish. The Master turning everyone on Earth into him, and then all that went with that. And then you had the last 10 minutes, or whatever it was, of the second part, where you had the Wilf reveal, and then him doing his victory tour, or his death tour. Of... Yeah, that's the human stuff. That's the character. That's where his strengths are. So we'll see. I mean, it's been a long time, so he's done a lot of different things since then, so hopefully he'll change up his approach because it was iffy. Oh yeah, for the 60th special we're getting the best of Russell Davis. I think when it actually goes into Shooty Gatwa's run, he won't have come back just to make his go again. He'll be a new go. 
it depends how much of it he's actually going to be writing as well. He might stay on the production side of it and hire writers rather than actually write it himself. We don't really know. I imagine he's written all these specials that are coming up. I'm talking about beyond that. Again, yeah, it depends on what he wants to do and what he wants to be involved in. Give it 10 years and Stephen Moffat will be back writing the show. The show won't last 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? We don't know. We're moving into a lifetime era of Doctor Who. Who knows? But Shuti Gatwa, we don't know much about him based on his two seconds of screen time that's in that trailer. I did watch his clip where he was answering questions about the show. That was quite fun. Yeah, that's Shuti Gatwa. That's not necessarily Doctor They've said he'll be the first gay doctor, but I think it's just that he's a gay actor playing the doctor. I don't know if the doctor himself will be gay. It's not public what his sexuality is. All right, okay. He's just very well known for playing the gay friend in sex education. I misread that then. It says the first gay doctor, and I thought that meant the actor. It's another case of the trickle-down of news. It's more private on that level. But I think it is a case of he's very well known for playing a gay character in sex education. And Rusty Davis, a lot of his shows, It's a Sin, Years and Years, Cucumber, revolve around young gay men. And I think a lot of news sources just put that and that together and jumped to this. He might be gay, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure he isn't openly labelled. But the Doctor as a character is more asexual than anything, I would say. Usually, yeah. Like I said, with the difference say, between Matt Smith and David Tennant, it also depends on the regeneration. Some of them are more open to their feelings and some of them are more alien or not alien but some of them it's not really their thing so we'll see it's an exciting time although it's another year until we see anything i'm glad it's a lot because i'm going to really miss this jodie whittaker's doctor in her era so i'm glad it wasn't this christmas it's a bit too swift for me but they might do a couple of surprise things in the interim between now and the 60th as well i think we've in terms of what they've been filming and stuff in terms of tv output there'll be stuff for the 60th in the same way i think there was like the five-ish doctors and adventure in space and time but i think in terms of the show as a narrative this is the next thing coming up in november yeah so watch the space anything else you want to say about doctor who in general before we move on just it has been very nice talking about that's here because it's something I'm very passionate about, so that's really fun. Before the 60th anniversary, we should come back and do the 50th anniversary. Yes. We should do a chat about that, a retrospective on that, just to compare what we expect to what we got last time. If any listeners want to get more into Doctor Who, say they really liked any of the performances of the classic Doctors that we saw in this episode and want to know some more, you know where to find us online or Twitter or wherever, and... I'll send you some recommendations. Use my knowledge, people out there. So that was us talking about the power of the Doctor. Isaac, thank you very much for coming on and having opinions for a change. It's great. Yeah, should do it more often. Don't get used to it. (laughs) You should have more opinions. Yeah, Black Panther was fine, I guess. (laughs) I'd like to thank TARDIS71 for the supplied music. Very lovely. Yeah, if you enjoy what you heard here, then please do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, usually as a rating system. But Isaac, how many stars would be like? A whole constellation of Custerberus of stars. That's five? After the master left it, five. And please do hit subscribe on those places as well. Anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. Please do subscribe and hear us ramble on more about other stuff. If you want to reach out to us and talk about Doctor Who or anything, you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or you can leave us a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. As Isaac offered, if you want some recommendations of prior Doctor Who stuff to check on, give us a shout and we will send some stuff your way that you can look at. And maybe I'll look at it as well because I don't know anything prior to 2005. Oh, and before we go, 
It's called the Blinovich Limitation Effect. I just remembered it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've been thinking about that for three hours. It's like, what was it called? <laughs> Good. Well like, done. I'm not looking it up. I was like, should I look it up? And I, and I got it. Good stuff. There you go. Absolutely yeah, good again, stuff. I remembered a bit of meaningless techno babble. Well, on that, as always, we hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod. Mm-hmm.